You're listening to the podcast of Eucharist Church in San Francisco, a community of faith seeking to live all of life in reference to Christ. Join us now for this week's message. probably noticed that we're still celebrating Christmas today. Uh, That's not a mistake. Uh, This is the last day of the 12-day Feast of the Nativity. And it's during this festival that we are invited to reflect on a series of stories about Jesus as a child. Uh, These are the familiar stories that we sing about in the carols and which are replayed uh, thousands of times over in live nativities each year. They are wonderfully wonderful and theologically rich Uh, narratives. I'd like to suggest that there's a forgotten story, though, one that plays an important role, uh, an important part in our understanding of the Incarnation that we are invited to reflect on today. And it's this story that we just heard read of Jesus in the temple as a precocious 12-year-old. You may know that uh, three of the Gospel accounts Matthew, Mark, and John either skip the birth altogether or take us straight, in Matthew's case, from Jesus as a baby to he, him as an adult when he is out in the wilderness with John the Baptist ready to begin his public ministry. It's only in Luke's gospel that we get this perplexing story about Jesus as an adolescent. We heard it read just a few moments ago, so I won't read it again. But there are some interesting things about this story that I'd like to point out. Not only does this story provide the one glimpse that we have into Jesus' adolescence, it's also the last time that we encounter Joseph, his father, as a living character in the narrative. After this scene, Joseph doesn't show up anymore. And so most scholars assume that he probably died somewhere between the time when Jesus was 12 here and his public ministry when it began 18 years later. The events of the story suggest that Jesus had some early awareness that the person who functioned in his life as his father, namely Joseph, was not actually his father. Now, we don't know if Mary and Joseph had shared the unique circumstances of Jesus' birth with him, the fact that neither uh, Joseph nor any other human man was actually his father. Obviously, that's a bit of a confusing story for a child. Uh, From Mary and Joseph's reaction in the story, it seems like they were pretty shocked at what Jesus uh, says, which leads me to think that perhaps they had not yet told him this important detail regarding his father's identity. But it seems clear that Jesus already understood the situation. Now, whatever the case, what we see in this story is that Jesus is actively seeking his true father. It's interesting that the first time we find Jesus speaking in the Gospels, in the first bit of dialogue to roll off of his tongue, he is telling us what his life is about. He is all about the Father. He longs to be in the Father's house. Now the context of the scene is filled with all kinds of complex emotion. Mary and Joseph have lost their son, not just any kid, the son of God. They've been feverishly searching for him for several days. They must have been totally panicked. Uh, This past week, Elizabeth (laughs) was at the zoo um, playing with Nathan, uh, our two-year-old son. And I I was at home, and she was on a a very crowded playground when she lost sight of him temporarily. 
Uh, she had helped him get to the top of a slide to go down one of these big slides that he loves to go down. And then when he got to the bottom, she, he was nowhere to be found. He had completely disappeared. And there were hundreds of kids and people across the, the whole playground. It was at the zoo and it was, everybody was out of school, so they're there. She couldn't find him anywhere. Uh, she called me up in horror uh, to tell me that she didn't know where Nathan was on the playground. I'm, of course, like 25 minutes away by car, and both of us together, as you imagine, just started freaking out. We were like, where is our kid? Uh, imagining the worst, of course. Now, I'm, thank God that she found him about two minutes later, wandering about, doing his Nathan thing. But that feeling of having lost your child, and, or having your child go missing, is about the worst feeling I've ever felt in my life. And I wasn't even there, exactly, on the playground. So I'm very sympathetic to Mary and to Joseph, who go through several days with that feeling of total panic in their hearts. Now finally, when they actually find Jesus in the temple, his mother ever so gently, uh, but clearly, chastises him. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And it's at this moment this emotionally complicated moment when Jesus chooses to clarify to his parents what he knows about his paternity. <laughs> he says to his parents, why were you looking for me? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, Did you not know that I would be in my must be in my father's house? What a fascinating statement. And there's loads that we could try to unpack about it. But for today, I would argue that Jesus is offering us a paradigm in this passage. This seemingly innocuous little bit of dialogue sets up a pattern that will shape the rest of the gospel, the rest of Jesus' ministry, and it goes like this. People are seeking Jesus only to discover that he is seeking the Father. That's the paradigm. Or to put it another way, a pursuit of Jesus inevitably leads us to the Father and to the Father's house. To put it in terms of the season that we're in, the nativity, the incarnation is ultimately about finding a way to the Father's house. Jesus comes to our house in order to lead us to the Father's house. One of the things that we see when we look at Jesus is that he is always looking to his Father. He's always talking about his Father. He's always teaching the disciples about the Father or sneaking off to go and communicate with him in prayer. Jesus is totally focused on the Father. And it's a two-way street. As we read through the Gospels, we see that at each of the most pivotal moments of Jesus' life, the Father seems to show up and reveal himself and express his love for his Son. He's there at the baptism. You remember? Those audible words he speaks of a blessing. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. He's there again at the transfiguration. Same thing. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. On the night when he is betrayed and arrested, Jesus is communing with his father, praying in agony in the garden. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying, the father shows his presence in all kinds of signs and wonders. The darkness of the sky, the earthquake, the little resurrection that happens, the splitting open of rocks. And upon Jesus' resurrection, what is it that's on Jesus' mind? It's the Father, you remember? He pleads with Mary not to cling to him so that he can go to be with the Father. 
From the first recorded words in the temple when he was 12 years old to his last before ascending to the Father, Jesus' whole being is oriented toward the Father. Jesus, in his incarnation, embodies the deepest longing of each of our hearts. We are all like Jesus, looking, seeking for our true Father, longing to be in the Father's house. I came across a quote written by the 20th century novelist Thomas Wolfe, in which he articulates this desire. I have a slide for this here. He says this, The deepest search in life, it seemed to me, the thing that in one way or another was central to all living was man's search to find a father. Not merely the father of his, of his flesh, not merely the father of his youth, but the image of a strength and wisdom external to his need and superior to his hunger, to which the belief and power of his own life could be united. Isn't that good? I don't know anything about Thomas Wolfe. I haven't read a single one of his novels. But I really resonate with that statement. All of us are seeking. Whether we can articulate it or not, whether consciously or unconsciously, for the presence and blessing and security of a father. Even if you had the best dad imaginable, even if you can't think of anything wrong or anything missing from your experience with your father, Something in you is still craving a father. Everyone is looking and seeking and searching for the father they never had. And this isn't a harsh indictment of our earthly fathers that it might sound like it is. And it's certainly not a diminishment of the vital importance and nurture and care of our mothers. What it is, is an expression of the deepest longing of our hearts for the fatherhood of God. You see, all of us have this sense that our existence is fleeting, that our identity is fragile. We feel insecure because, in truth, we are. And all of the success and all the financial security and all the insurance you can buy and all the mindfulness and yoga and therapy in the world won't change the fact that we are, in the words of the scriptures, like the grass of the field, here today and gone tomorrow. And in those quiet moments, when we're thinking clearly, we all know that there is nothing in and of ourselves that we can do to make ourselves secure. This morning at about four in the morning, my son woke up and he was saying, Dada, 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 he's crying out for me. And I came in and I got him a pacifier and I gave it to him. That's really all he wanted in that moment here. (laughs) But what I realized is I can do pacifier, but I can't really secure him. I can't protect him from all the things he needs to be protected from. We need a father. We need a father who can establish us, who can protect us, who can secure us. Now, I know that this language of father with regards to God can be difficult for some to accept. It's quite unpopular in some circles, as I'm sure you're aware. Many people assume that the language of the Bible that refers to God as Father is merely a projection of our human experience and the result of living in a historically patriarchal culture. That's one way to think about it. But there's another perspective that a number of theologians advocate that I think has great merit. 
In this perspective, the family, and in particular, the human notion of fatherhood as we experience it, is at its best a kind of limited incarnation of the greater archetypal fatherhood of God. It's kind of the reverse direction here. In other words, rather than God as Father merely being a projection of our human experience upwards, these theologians suggest that our experience of the human fatherhood should be seen as a derivative of God's ultimate fatherhood. And what this means is that we can only understand the true meaning of fatherhood by looking beyond our earthly fathers to the fatherhood of God. Our human experience of fatherhood will always be limited and, at best, a distant echo of the ultimate fatherhood of God. St. Paul expresses this idea in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I have a slide for this again. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. And if you see in the Greek there, there's that word pater, is the Father, and then patria is the fatherhood. Every fatherhood takes its name or its identity and its power and its sense of who it is from the ultimate Father here. The idea of God as Father is not new with the New Testament. Uh, The Old Testament uses the language of God as Father a handful of times. One of them is found in our reading from Jeremiah today, where God says in in Jeremiah 37, verse 9, He says, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. But one of the things that we see throughout the Old Testament is that God's people, for the most part, don't understand how to relate to God as Father. They don't know what it means to have a father. To have God as Father, and, and, or how they should act as God's children. The concept of God as Father is muddled and it is underdeveloped. And so it isn't until the incarnation of God's Son, the coming of Jesus, that we are celebrating in this season, that we get a picture both of what it means to have God as Father and what it looks like to live as God's children. The very concept of fatherhood had to first be established and clarified. And even though we tend to think of the incarnation as being about the coming of a baby, about a son, it is equally about what it means to have a father. Having a father, in the case of Jesus, is what allowed him to be strong and courageous and to never waver even amidst wild swings in popularity. He wasn't swayed by the crowd. He wasn't threatened by false accusations or by slander. But equally, he wasn't some untouchable, hardened cowboy who just didn't care what anyone else thought. He was vulnerable. He wept. He played with children. He was comfortable in his own skin. He ate, he drank, he told a good story. He was relatable and kind and yet firm and passionate and spoke the truth boldly when love called for it. His ability to love, the strength of his love, wasn't anchored or centered in himself. It came from the security of his identity in his Father. It was the Father that made Jesus who he was. When times were tough and pressure was on, Jesus didn't go and look inside of himself. He didn't turn inward to assure himself about who he was. He didn't practice mindfulness or yoga. He turned to the Father. He turned to the Father. Throughout his life, Jesus demonstrates to us exactly what it means to have a true Father and what it looks like to be a true Son. 
when the disciples ask him about, about uh, ask him to teach them about how to pray, do you remember what he teaches them? He gives them this prayer. He says, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven. If there is anything that you and I need most, it's to discover the goodness and the freedom and the peace and the hope and the joy of having a Father. When I think about the challenges that I face um, as a priest, as a father, as a husband, I'm confident that I do not have what it takes within me to do these things. I don't have it. And I'm pretty sure that if I asked you, and you were honest, you'd say the same thing about yourself. We need a father. One of the great ironies about Jesus' life and perhaps the, is that perhaps the most often repeated slander against him in his lifetime was that he was an illegitimate child whose father was unknown. We see this charge being leveled at him in the Gospel of John chapter 8 in the midst of a heated debate with the Judeans where Jesus is suggesting that they are not the true heirs of Abraham. And in response, they essentially say to him, whatever you say about us, at least we're not illegitimate children. Later on in the second century, the Greek writer Celsus, who was a great opponent of Christianity, wrote a book about how Jesus was born as the result of a Roman soldier raping Mary. The name of the soldier was Pantera, and later rabbis picked this theme up and ran with it, referring to Jesus as Yeshu bin Pantera, Jesus the son of Pantera. All this was added to the notion that Jesus was a bastard child, that he was an illegitimate son, a child of shame and dishonor. But the truth, of course, is that Jesus was and is, in reality, the only legitimate child of the one true Father. And we, all of us, are in fact orphans and illegitimates. But the story of the gospel is about how we, who are, who are completely undeserving, got in on having a place at the Father's table. Not through any privilege or right of our own, not through our own cleverness, not through our own goodness, but through the ridiculous generosity of God who came and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus, who allowed himself to live under the guise of being an illegitimate child so that we who are fatherless might eternally have a place at the Father's table. The gospel is the story about how one who appeared to many to be an illegitimate son brought us who do not belong in, into the household of the Father. As Ephesians 1.5 says, as we heard read today, in love, God predestined us for adoption. God destined us in advance for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The only way that we can truly relate to the Father of Jesus as our Father is through the adoption we have in and through Christ. Over the Christmas holiday while we were away, Elizabeth and I met a Christian woman who, as we got to know her, shared with us that she had three sons that were the same age. Elizabeth and I, like, since she's pregnant, we were like, wow, triplets. But that must have been crazy. But she quickly clarified, actually I had twins. And then we adopted a third child. And at this point, we were like, whoa. Uh, twins sound hard enough. Like, why would you add a third to the mix here? 
she went on to explain how it happened. When her biological twin sons were much younger in grade school, one of their friends was another boy at school who had parents who were addicted to meth. One day the parents of this boy dropped him off at uh, this woman's house sort of spontaneously and asked if she would watch over them over him for the weekend while they were away. She knew something wasn't right. And that was confirmed when they didn't come back for 39 days. But at that point, it seemed clear that the boy couldn't go home. He was going to be put in the foster system. And so this lady's sons came to her and pled with her. Let's just adopt him. Let's bring him into our own family. And that's exactly what happened. In their case, the adoption was never official, actually. It was too complicated. Too many courts and people to deal with. But the boy went on to live with their family for the rest of the school, for the rest of his schooling, until he le- left the home. Now that he's much older, he comes home every Christmas and for all the holidays. He refers to this lady and her husband as mom and dad. Both Elizabeth and I were struck by the beauty of the gospel in this story. This is the gospel embodied in a family. I just kept thinking about the story as I prepared the sermon. The experience of that boy whose family was in disarray. That's our story. All of us. No matter how good our family looks, it doesn't matter. That's our story. And it's because of our brother Jesus who advocated for us that we have been adopted into, the, into God's family as sons and daughters. But in our case, it's even better. Everything is official. There's really no question about it. There's no loose ends, no technicalities. There's no court that can take us away. We can be absolutely confident because of Christ that we who have been baptized into Christ are indeed legitimate children of God. As 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. And so may we, like Jesus, be ever seeking after our true Father, longing to be in His house. And may He establish us as His true sons and daughters and secure us in His love. And may we look to Him for strength and protection and clarity. May He be our greatest delight. And one day, may we all feast eternally at His table. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's just take a few moments to reflect on what we've heard today. Heavenly Father, thank you that when we were a long ways off, fatherless, confused, and broken, you came to us in Christ. You brought us into your family. Thank you that you are our true Father. Thank you that you have loved us with eternal love, a love that is unbreakable and unstoppable. Would you comfort our hearts today in all the places where we feel so insecure, where we feel so uncertain? where we feel so inadequate. Would you speak those words over us that you spoke over, Jesus? 
This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Speak to us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Remind us of who we are. Thank you for your love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Eucharist Podcast. For more information, you can visit our website at eucharistsf.org.